Well, I trust that you have Isaiah 6 at hand in front of you. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. If Exodus 3 is one of the great encounters with God that the Old Testament records, Isaiah 6 must surely stand alongside it. It is uh, an extraordinarily powerful description of a man seeing something, not everything, but something of what it means to say that God is real and God is there and God reigns. Let's try to get our heads around the circumstances because as always, it's when we see the circumstances, the context in Scripture, we begin to understand much more fully what a passage is opening before us. In the year that King Isaiah died. I don't know if that means very much to you. Um, the chances are it doesn't particularly. None of us are that familiar probably with King Isaiah. Uh, we don't we might be pushed to remember exactly who he was and what he did. All we know is really that he died. Well, I suppose we know that he was king before that. What is it? What, what is the significance that it is in the year that King Isaiah died that Isaiah saw the Lord? Well, we can probably guess that this is a sad moment. I guess the death of some people is almost celebrated, but mostly the news that someone is dead is a, a sad moment. And it was on this instance. If you're hazy about King Isaiah, you might later want to read 2 Kings 15 or 2 Chronicles 26. Uh, Isaiah was a king of great promise. He reigned a good long while, over 50 years. And he was a man who depended on God, of whom we read the lovely statement that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he was blessed by the Lord in all sorts of ways. He was a, a king, uh, one, of the, one of the great kings uh, of Israel. Um, and yet there is a sad side to Isaiah because... The scripture underlines how powerful he became, how his fame spread in the whole region, uh, the provisions he made for his, his own forces and for the agriculture and for the temple and so on. But we also read that when he became powerful, 
he also became proud. And there came a point where there was a sort of tipping uh, point in his reign, where the man who had so looked to the Lord and so depended on the Lord came to a point where he began to assert his own importance rather than the Lord's importance. And uh, he entered the temple, and instead of coming as a worshipper, he tried to take over the function of a priest, uh, to try to take the role of the high priest. And he was confronted by the, uh, the high priest and a whole bunch of other godly men. And he raged at them, standing before the altar in the temple. And uh, he was struck down with a terrible leprosy, that a moment. Uh, the scripture says that he was desperate to get out of that place as much as the others were desperate to see him go. And for the last 10 or 12 years, he was afflicted with this terrible disease. It cut him off from all others. He had to live separately by himself. He had to hand over government and reign to his son. And never again did he enter the temple because he was a leper. And finally, he died in the year that King Isaiah died. So that phrase speaks of a life that began so well. A man who seemed to epitomize the blessing that God brought to those who trusted in him, and yet his life ended in sadness and judgment. It's a tragic story. But you see, in a way, that was Judah's story. The story of the king, in a way, said something about the story of the whole nation. Alec Matias says the, the prophet saw in respect of one, that is, this king, what he feared for all. Because God's people had been so blessed as well. And at times they had truly depended on the Lord and proved the Lord. They had been so favored by the Lord. But in their prosperity and blessing, they became proud like the king became proud. And if you read Isaiah chapter 1 to 5, Lots of people know Isaiah 6 and are much less familiar with the first five chapters. The first five chapters are, are pretty uncomfortable reading because they are a stinging uh, expose of the spiritual state of God's people. Ah, it says chapter 1 verse 4, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. They are like king, like people. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Uh, your fields are being stripped by foreigners. Hear the word of the Lord. And he's addressing Jerusalem. He's addressing Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And there is no greater insult that God could have used to describe Jerusalem. The multitudes of your sacrifices are religious. 
What are they to me, says the Lord? I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who's asked this of you? This trampling of my court. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates. You see, it's, a, it's a, 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 an expose of a people who have become like their king and of a king who is like their people, his people. It was a sad moment, but in the year that King Isaiah died was also a dangerous moment. It was a time when men's hearts failed. Uh, just look in the previous, the immediate previous verses in chapter 5. Because the Lord, having denounced through Isaiah, incidentally there are invitations of huge promise in the midst of chapters 1 to 5. It's not all denunciation. There are some wonderful and famous passages that you might recognize even if you uh, you, you don't immediately know where they come from. Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's also in Isaiah 1. So it's not all uh, gloom. There is the invitation and the offering. And yet the, the basic situation is the people who've lost their way. And at the end of chapter 5, there is a terrifying description of an army. And it speaks of this army as summoned by God. Verse 26, he, that's the Lord, well, we'll go back to the verse before, for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. This is the Lord's anger. Look in verse 25, the Lord's anger burns against his people, his hand is raised and strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. This is Syria. Uh, this is the horrors of war. Verse 26, he lifts up a banner. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. And here they come. And what is it that comes? Well, it's an army. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one stumbles, slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses who seem like flint. Their chariot wheels are like whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the young of the lion. They roar like young lions. That language <coughs> is the language the Assyrians used of their own regime. They scattered Nineveh with, with statues of lions. Their kings described themselves in these terms. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue in that day, they will roar over it uh, like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress, and even the light will be darkened by the clouds. This is the judgment of God. This is the, well, most commentators think this is the Assyrian army descending on Israel, the northern kingdom, to wipe it out forever, and then to flood into the land of Judah and to destroy city after city till they besiege Jerusalem and only thanks to the wonderful intervention of God in the days of Hezekiah did Judah survive at least for a while at that moment. Dangerous times. You see, we so often dive into chapter 6 and we're not trembling in chapter 5. 
It's only if you tremble in chapter 5 that you'll see the glory in its fullness of chapter 6. This was a time when men's hearts failed. Just turn to chapter 7, verse 2. There was an alliance against Judah of the northern kingdom and the Syrians, which terrified them. It wasn't actually what they should have been terrified of. They should have been much more terrified of the Assyrians. But it says this, uh, uh, when they heard the news of this alliance against them reached Jerusalem, the hearts of Ahaz, that was the king, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind in the year that King Uzziah died, hearts failed. Now, I, I don't know how you've come to this conference. Some of you may have come enthusiastically and bushy-tailed, as it were, and others of you may have come worn down and disheartened and hardly wanting to tell people how it really is. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. You see, it's in those sorts of days that he saw the Lord. And all of us need, as it were, to, to move through verse 1, to, to turn our attention from seeing the problems and troubles and crises as center and to see above and beyond, I, I need to see the Lord seated on a throne. And when you truly see him, everything else looks different. He was reigning. He was reigning. Uh, I saw the Lord seated on a the throne. There was a dead, disappointing, disfigured, disgraced, king in a coffin in Jerusalem, but there was a living, awesome, mighty, reigning king in glory, and he's still there, seated on a throne, and that's a beautiful description. See, it's a picture of calm and absolute authority. This king is not frantic. He's not rushing around. He's not flustered. He, he's not uh, going hither and thither in an enormous frenzy of energy. He's seated on a throne high and exalted. He's seated on a throne that has no rival. He's seated on a throne above all others. That is where our king is this morning. What Isaiah saw is what... John in Revelation saw, which is what believers can see whenever they turn to the Scriptures. This is what is true now. Our God is seated on a throne. And this is the real deal. You see, look in verse 3, what the living, the seraphs cry to one another. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. And that word, look at it, almighty. It, it, it declares a power that has no limits. All mighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It didn't look like it. Not in, not in Jerusalem. I mean, you could point out the Assyrians. You could point out the Babylonians. You could point out the Egyptians. Uh, you could point out all sorts of regimes which paid no attention to the Lord, the God of Israel. And yet, the, the, you see... The, 
this is not a desperate prayer. Oh, Lord, may the whole earth be full of your glory. It isn't a crying out that it might one day be so. It is a declaration that it is so. The whole earth is full of his glory. It may not be perceived, but it is. It's seen in heaven, and it's seen by those who trust him. It's a fact. He reigns. The Lord reigns in glory in North Korea. 400,000 believers, a quarter of them in prison camps. What do they need to know? They need to know that their king is seated on a throne right now. He reigns in glory in Saudi Arabia, in Syria, in the UK. He is the king, the Lord Almighty, your God. Right. We sing those words, don't we? And you use those words, and they're great words to use, and sometimes we get a bit familiar with them. Your God reigns, reigning. And secondly, revealing himself. You see, it's, it's most significant. He says, I saw the Lord. It's not just that the Lord is reigning, but in some way it was disclosed to him. It was revealed to him. Verse 5, he says, my eyes have seen the king. Everything looks different. I've seen the king. And the scripture emphasizes that Isaiah saw. He didn't see perhaps the fullness of the majesty of the glory of God, but he saw something extreme and awesome of it. In John 12, 41, it comments, there's a comment that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. And spoke about him. It's a very remarkable verse. If you don't think it's there, you can check it. John 12, verse 41. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. See, this is a God who, who makes himself known. And there is something about seeing, isn't it? Seeing for yourself. Taking it in for yourself. Isaiah declared God, knew God, spoke of God, but in, in some amazing way, the Lord revealed himself in such a way that he could say at that time, I saw the Lord. Um, I've been going to India for many years now, and uh, I guess most people have heard of the Taj Mahal. You heard of the Taj Mahal? Um, I'd heard of the Taj Mahal. I would even recognize it in the photograph. But frankly, you know, I mean, Taj Mahal. It didn't kind of impress me. I, 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 when I say it didn't impress me, it just didn't really mean very much to me and, and, until, until I got taken to the Taj Mahal. And when I actually saw it, that symphony in marble, I was blown away. This awesome building. It's a tragic building, but it's an awesome building because I saw it. And I never thought of the Taj Mahal in the same way. A few weeks ago, Margie and I saw the Victoria Falls. Well, I've heard of the Victoria Falls all my life. I know they're there. Wow, something else seeing them. The awesomeness with which they just go on, and you go further, and they go on, 
and you go on, and they go on, and you stand as far as you can in the middle, and, and you as, pretty well as far as you can see one way, and as far, except there's so much spray, you can hardly see it all at one time. And you get absolutely soaked. It's beautifully hot as well, so you dry out pretty quickly. And, but it is an awesome sight. Now, David Livingstone, the first European to see them, said that he, the angels must have been marveling at them all those centuries as well. Uh, yeah, you saw the Victoria Falls. I, I won't ever think of the Victoria Falls in quite the same way. because, Well, because I've seen them, you see. And uh, Isaiah saw the Lord. And, and all comparisons and all, um, all illusions fall into insignificance besides seeing him. Now, we're not Isaiah. We do not yet see. One, one day we will see. One day we will see with our own eyes. One day we'll join Job and say that we will see our Redeemer with our own eyes. I am not another. Uh, but he has disclosed himself. Of course, at times he's given a special sight of himself, as Isaiah knew here as Paul, who was caught up in paradise, to paradise, as we read in 2 Corinthians 11, or or John in Revelation, but even though we do not yet see heaven open quite as these great servants of God, this is recorded for us so that we do see heaven open, so that we see the Lord. And through this scripture, God goes on revealing himself so that we too see Jesus. We too see the glory of God on his throne. So, this king is reigning, and this king reveals himself, and this king is greater. Uh, he outclasses, he exceeds, he, he overtops every other, but also every idea and understanding we have of him. As Isaiah tries to explain God, there's a kind of reticence that comes over him. It, it's very like John in Revelation. He doesn't kind of quite describe God directly, but he describes God in terms of what surrounded him, the, the, the throne that he sat on and the robe of his, uh, uh, the train of his robe and the temple where he was revealed and, and the seraphs and the wings of the seraphs and the voice of the seraphs and the effects of the voice on the doorposts and thresholds and on Isaiah. And somehow, and somehow, we see the Lord without quite having him described because he is kind of greater than any words can quite summon up. And, and just consider this, the train that could be translated the hem of his robe filled the temple. You ever seen a bride? Uh, everybody stands in church waiting for the bride and you turn around and have a peek, and there she comes. Uh, I, I haven't usually commented greatly on the hem of her garment. The hem of God's garment is sufficient to fill the entire temple. The temple was built at God's command. It was built by God's design. It was the place he was going to dwell and put his presence among Israel. It was the most precious, the most awesome place on earth. 
And yet all that the temple can do is accommodate the hem of his robe, the, the, the train of his robe. But you know, Solomon said it at the time the temple was built. In 1 Kings 8, 27, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And how prone we are as sinful fallen people to confine our God and our understanding of our God to how we think of him. But you know, however many sermons we've heard, however confident we are in the gospel, however long we've been Christians, God is all that we have understood. I don't want to disparage any great sermon you've heard about God. God is all that we've understood, but he is always greater. He is always more. You won't arrive in heaven and say, oh, well, I understood all that already. When you see the glory of God, you will say the half was not told you. Beyond all description, he's greater. And, fourthly, he's holy. He's holy. There's nothing more fundamental to Isaiah's declaration of God than that he is holy. The creatures cry, holy, holy, holy. That word holy is used of God more often in Isaiah than in all the rest of the Old Testament put together. And the title, the Holy One of Israel, is one of the great titles given to God in Scripture. It comes 25 times in the book of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. And in multiple ways, the holiness of God is set before us. God is holy. People in our society hardly use that word anymore, holy. They have almost no conception of what holy means. And when they do use it, they use it trivially. God is truly holy. Look at the behavior of the seraphs. Um, there I saw the Lord, uh, and, and he is high and exalted on the throne, and above him, verse 2, were, were seraphs. The word seraph is not exactly a common word even in Scripture. In fact, it's only used twice in your Bible, here in verse 2 and there in verse 6, one of the seraphs. That's it. The seraphs, the seraphim. Um, and yet we recognize them, don't we? Because uh, we come across them again in Revelation 4, what John calls the living creatures. And they're crying the same song, and they're in the same place, uh, and they have the same number of wings, uh, and, and they're doing similar things with their wings, and you kind of look and you think, we've seen that already. And you know, it's not just that they've suddenly appeared again. They've never gone. They've never stopped. They've never ceased they are constantly in the presence of God and they are constantly affirming the same thing about God. And they are awesome beings with six wings. Uh, and yet, you know, when you read this story, you don't go away and say, wow, amazing description of the seraph. Do you? You go away and say, amazing description of the Lord. Because the seraphs are entirely eclipsed 
by the one they worship. Everyone is entirely eclipsed by the one they worship. Uh, and what are they doing? Well, they are there, and they are clearly sinless beings. They are able to dwell in God's presence. Uh, and yet, uh, with these six wings, I mean, what are they using their wings for? Well, we're told, aren't we, with two, they cover their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. So of the six wings, four of them are for covering, and only two are for flying. And what are they doing covering? Well, they're covering themselves before the holiness of God. And you see, this is very suggestive. What, what do we mean by saying that God is holy? Because, <laughs> I mean, the seraphs, they're, they're holy, aren't they? They're, they're sinless beings. They're pure. And yet these pure, sinless beings are forever covering themselves before a God so holy that they have to hide themselves before him. That's what holiness means. There's something about the holiness of God that is more holy. And look at the words of the seraphs there in verse 3, the famous affirmation, holy, holy, holy. They were calling. That's a continuous sense. They're still calling. They go on calling day and night. They call, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, Verse 4, the, the whole place, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the whole temple is filled with smoke. You read the description of the Lord coming down on Sinai, Exodus 19. The whole mountain was covered with smoke. Or you read of the, the tabernacle first being set up in Exodus 40, and the smoke of God's glory filled it totally so that no one could come or go. Something awesome. The behavior of the seraphs, the words of the seraphs, the effect on Isaiah. Look at him, verse 5. Woe to me. I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the, the, seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. It's, isn't that interesting? See, what do we say when we really get close to God? Woe to me. Utterly abasing. We suddenly see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we see ourselves as we are. And it is utterly abasing to see God. There's not a particle of self-importance that can survive if that's a genuine experience. And notice his sense of guilt about his words. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah was an eloquent man. In fact, you could say his eloquence was his strongest point. The book of Isaiah has some of the most exalted language in the whole of your Bible. And yet at the very point of his strength, you know, on his CV, you would say, this man has, you know, the verbal eloquence of an angel. Something extraordinary about his ability with language. 
but it is at that very point of his apparent strength that he is broken down by his guilt. I don't know if you're inclined to rate yourself highly in some realm or other. You, you perhaps don't tell people, but you, you know you're rather good at that. Before God, we are fallen in everything that we take pride in. But we need to see something more. You see, we don't quite get verse 5 unless we get chapter 5. Because in Isaiah 5, the Lord, through Isaiah, looks out over his people and he declares his judgment and horror at their condition. Look in verse 8 of chapter 5. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. Woe to those, verse 18, who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with a cart with cart ropes. Woe to those, verse 20, who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe. Woe, woe, five times. Whoa, when Isaiah looks out over the people of God, he declares, whoa, whoa, and whoa. But when Isaiah sees, sees God, he says, woe to me. Isn't that interesting? Woe to me. Suddenly, it's not the sins of others, but his own sin that he reels, that is revealed to him. We don't go into this world is superior to others. See, we too are sinners. And we need to know that. We go with a message of grace as people who desperately need grace ourselves. And so, the holiness of God is revealed in its effect on Isaiah. But it's also the holiness of God is revealed in the provision made for him, verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in my hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What a glorious provision. See, here is God's grace. The seraph, you know, the seraphs don't do their own thing. Seraphs totally represent God. So when the seraph comes, it isn't because... Uh, Isaiah summoned him, or the seraph thought, what shall I do next? No, the seraph is God's agent. This is God's initiative. Even as he cries, woe to me in despair, there is a seraph flying to him with a live coal. This is God's initiative, not Isaiah's achievement. That's how salvation works, God's grace. It's costly grace, because look where the coal comes from. A live coal in his hand, verse 60, verse 6, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. There is an altar there. There is a place of sacrifice. 
You see, we don't, of course, fully have here explained what that means. We have to wait till Isaiah 53 to get the fullest expression and explanation. But this is no cheap, easy, trifling grace as though God just snapped his finger and forgave everybody without trying. No, this is costly grace. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the sin offering. He is the sacrifice. His is the death that paid the penalty in our place. That is what it means to find forgiveness. It's always at the cost of Jesus. It is a powerful, powerful grace. Look in verse 7. What he declares, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And the coal touches his lips, the place of sin. That place is made absolutely holy. And the part speaks of the whole. This is how salvation works. God doesn't do half a job. There is complete provision for our sins. That's the glory of the gospel that we preach, that we can speak to the drug dealer, and we can speak to the murderer, and we can speak to the proud and the selfish, and we can declare there is a complete provision in what Christ has done for us. And you see, it is only then, it is only after the Isaiah has encountered the Lord in this way that he is fit for service, verse 7. His guilt is atoned for, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And that's surely a well-worn and essential path for us to tread as well. One commentator said, the vision of God leads to to self-despair. And self-despair opens the door to cleansing. And cleansing to service. You see, if we rush into service on the basis of gift, we will hit a wall. If we rush into service on the basis of self-despair that brings us to true cleansing, that is the only way to be equipped for service. And we find this extraordinary fact that this mighty, overwhelming God stoops to use a human being. Then it was Isaiah. Now it is us who believe and encounter and fear this same God. And Isaiah, God forbid, he doesn't go to represent himself. He doesn't go to say you know, how great he is. He doesn't go to sell merchandise with pictures of Isaiah on. He isn't promoting himself. And he is not promoting his society. He is promoting his God. And that is the only business of God's representatives. And finally, we come to the task. But we couldn't come to the task until we'd seen the Lord. And none of us can go back to the task without first seeing the Lord. So look at the task. Verse 9, he said, go and tell this people. And we're all agog. I mean, what a sublime introduction. We reach surely the high point here. 
Go, tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. See, this chapter is just extraordinary. Because you have this amazingly sublime introduction of the glory of God and the man who is brought low and is then sent out. And, and then we come to his actual ministry. And it's so completely deflated. You know, there are lots of sermons in Isaiah 6 that end in chapter, verse 8. I think most sermons I've ever heard on Isaiah 6 have ended in verse 8. Because verses 9 to 13 are a shock. But you know, there's a very curious fact. That the New Testament refers to Isaiah 6 quite a lot. And it's almost to the part we don't preach on, the second part. You can check it out. Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, the second part of Isaiah 6, in all four Gospels. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, and John 12. And so does Paul at the end in, of Acts, in Acts 28. When Jesus refer, tells the parable of the sower, and he talks about all the different sorts of soil and the hard ground on the path and the rocky soil and the thorny soil and then some good soil too. Uh, and he explains what he is doing. He, he refers and quotes Isaiah 6. So what's going on? Well, let, we've got to consider the context. There is a specific context. Isaiah was sent to ancient Judah. Jesus was speaking of the response of the people of, of Israel to his ministry. Paul is referring to the hearts of, of Jews in the first century. And these verses in Isaiah 6 express God's judgment in hardening the hearts of those who had had the most supreme revelation of God through the centuries, through the prophets, after prophet, after prophet, and yet rebelled against him again and again until finally when God came in person, they crucified him. See, God's word we rejoice in can open people's hearts. But you know, God's word can also harden people's hearts. Because you never stay still when you hear God's word. You move one way or the other. You will either move closer in response or you will move away you will harden your heart or soften your heart. And, and what God's word does is expose where you really are. Now, these verses were not saying that there were no faithful disciples to be found among the Israelites. There were some. I mean, Isaiah himself is an Israelite. And nor is Isaiah describing the universal experience of all who declared God's truth. Take Jonah in Nineveh, declaring the message of 
of judgment. And he finds the whole city turns around in repentance and sackcloth and ashes and fasting, the king to the lowest slave. And he's absolutely horrified that God should spare such a wicked place. Now, it's extraordinary. Or take Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and 3,000. I've never quite worked out how they cope with 3,000. But there they had 3,000 who put their faith in the Lord on the same day. Or take Paul and the extraordinary turning of Gentiles to Christ in Acts and the Epistles. Or take the explosion of the Chinese church today. And some of you will be ministering in times and places of remarkable responsiveness. Some of you won't. Some of you won't. And it seems to me that we go into Christian ministry, we... We're prepared for some aspects of it, the hard work maybe and the challenges and having to preach and teach and take initiatives and persevere with people, but we're often not really prepared for disappointment. We're not really prepared for rejection on this sort of scale that Isaiah 6 talks about. God came in person for 33 years to this world and we crucified him. What did they do to the apostles? As far as we know, apart from John, who lived to his old age, they all were put to death for their declaration of Christ. And yet somehow in our minds, savage persecution is pretty well something that happens somewhere else. And I think there are that for all that's specific about the situation which Isaiah is speaking of, there are parallels today. I say this cautiously, but Europe has had unusual spiritual privileges. Europeans have never been the people of God, but they have had wonderful privileges. And the UK is one of the most singular examples of that. We've had the scriptures in our own language for so many centuries at the cost of the lives of its translators. We've had the Reformation impact our country profoundly. The Puritans sowing the seed of God's word across our land. We've had the Great Awakening. We've had Wesley and Whitfield. We've had some amazing preachers like Spurgeon and the early missionary movement, William Carey, and so on and on and on. And we've had extraordinary privileges. And yet Europe today is in the grip of a terrible spiritual hardening. I was talking to an international student worker, an American from, I think, Washington. Uh, and uh, he works all the time with international students in the States and that university. And he said, the most open people who come to that university, surprise, surprise, are the Chinese. All over the world, that seems to be the case. And you know, the most closed, the most cynical, the most hardened that they deal with is the British. The hardened students the most hardened are British. Now, there's always resistance, actually. The revelation of God's truth is coming into a world which is Satan's kingdom. And God's word exposes the condition of men's hearts. And parable of the sower, there are four sorts of places it falls, and three of them don't go anywhere, at least not in the long term. John 3.19, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. There's a spiritual power chaining 
people in chains and darkening their understanding. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Even when he's proclaimed to them, even had the experience of running an evangelistic group or having repeated contact with somebody or maybe a group of people and you see one person who gloriously comes to a faith and the other person who has exactly the same exposure as far as you can see, who simply says, no, thank you, and walks away forever, it seems. See, we need to know that there is blessing in Christian ministry and encouragement, but we also need to know Isaiah 6 is there. And there are times of anguish and difficulty and rejection that goes on, this is what happens in I 6, for year after year and decade after decade and after decade. Paul, I mean, it's not just Old Testament. You think of the Apostle Paul who knew extraordinary blessings and power in Christian ministry, but he also knew extraordinary sufferings. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Even in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. I mean, this is the great apostle. He said, we despair of life. We felt the sentence of death. This is Humanly speaking, apart from Christ, the greatest evangelist that we ever read of. And in his last letter, you can check it out in 2 Timothy, when he says that I've kept the faith and finished the race and there's that glorious sense of future prospect of being with the Lord. And, and he says, the, he speaks of the entire province of Asia. He's talking about believers. He said the, the, the province of Asia has deserted. He named some of the believers who just didn't want to know. And this is the great apostle. And we are stumbled so easily by the discouragements and disappointments and struggles in Christian ministry, partly because we don't read our Bibles closely enough and see it's all there, brothers and sisters. It's all there. My... Uh, Parents were missionaries initially in China, but later in Indonesia. And they were there at a very extraordinary time. At the end of the 50s, a remarkable turning to the Lord Jesus among Muslims, one of the most remarkable in history. And he saw, my father was engaged in evangelism, and saw amazing fruit. And he wrote a book about it, drawn from his diaries called The Prisoner Leaps. But he wrote a second book as well, because after the years of great blessing, there were years of great struggle and difficulty. Leaders in the church who, who actually didn't want all this evangelism. And there was great trouble and opposition. A and then my mother, just at a point where they were in many ways having such a fruitful ministry, my mother fell increasingly ill, so ill that her life was in danger and she had to be flown back for surgery in the UK. And they never returned to the place of such fruitfulness once. 
And uh, when my father finally left, my mother had already gone in the plane. There was a final meeting. He was given an orchid. And he got in the train, and he held an orchid in his hand. And some youth threw a stone at the train, smashed the window where my father was sitting, and the stone landed in his lap. And he said, I left Indonesia with an orchid in one hand and a stone in the other. That's Christian ministry. That's the reality of what serving the Lord Jesus is like. I was a pastor for 30 years. I held a stone as well as an orchid. And so, if we can put it reverently, did Christ and all the apostles. The challenge, verse 11. Isaiah says, for how long, O Lord? How long? You see, we can generally cope with sort of a crisis moment. You know, there's tremendous opposition. Somebody starts throwing stones at us or curses us or whatever it is. We, we can cope with the, the kind of one-off. And in fact, it makes quite a good story to tell about, you know, how, how the Lord saw us through that crisis. How long? Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. Do you get the message? Precisely the opposite of what Isaiah, Isaiah wanted to be told. Look, you just persevere for ten years and then you'll come through the far side. God does not promise we'll come through the far side. Think of Jeremiah who ministered to an unbelieving people who went on, as far as we know, unbelieving. Isaiah, according to tradition, sawn in two by Manasseh. See, God doesn't promise that we in our lifetime will come out the far side into some time of wonderful triumph. You see, this passage talks of long-term hardness. 2 Timothy 3, 1, mark this. Take note. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And what is Isaiah to do? Pack up, go home. Once had a man who came up to me after I'd been preaching on a hot summer's evening, and he said, as you stood up, the Lord gave me a word for you. It went like this. Slow down, sit down, shut up. <laughs> well, there are times when that's tempting. Do you know, rather than shut up, Isaiah left us 66 chapters of proclamation in days of spiritual hardness. Jeremiah went on with the same message. Paul went on proclaiming Christ. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, 
and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, in view beyond, yes, this trouble, to the glories that lie ahead, I give you this charge, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myth. In the light of that, Paul, don't we give up? No, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of evangelism, discharge all the duties of your ministry so that one day you will stand before his throne and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Go on, persevere. And there is a promise, you see. And well, you say, I'm not quite sure where the promise is. Look at the last phrase. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Eric Kidner describes this as an expression of infinite promise. Another commentator says, in God's overall purposes, judgment is never his last word. There, there will be a holy seed. There will be a fruit of this ministry. There will be something that will outlast everything Satan throws at us. God's people will be preserved. There may be few. There may be very apparently limited. And yet they will be kept. And despite all the dif difficulties of Isaiah's time, despite all the difficulties that prevailed in the first century, despite the crucifixion of the Messiah himself, despite the persecution that would come in the days when Nero would light up his gardens by burning Christians alive, despite those, God will build his kingdom. And Isaiah himself wrote, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and don't stop there, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You see, and we're told in advance so that in the present times, when it doesn't look at all obvious, we never give up because God's promise is given to us of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. And this is the proclamation of the truth of God that is to go out into all the world until Christ returns. And we see the Holy Seed the Holy Seed, in one sense, can be taken as an expression referring to Christ himself. But it is also an appropriate description of all those who trust in him. And one day, with our own eyes, we who see the king one day, will also see what he has done. And we will see a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits. Where is he sat on? He sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be those who see Jesus. We want to see the Lord high and lifted up and see with our minds, hearts, what Scripture sets before us that in the days of greatest sorrow and greatest discouragement and greatest fear, the Lord reigns and is seated this, this morning in the, on the heights of glory. And Lord, we want to persevere through every discouragement. I pray for all my brothers and sisters here who come discouraged and downhearted. Would you lift up their eyes to the throne? May they take heart in the promise. May they be fortified for the difficult days as well as for the fruitful days. May they persevere in ministry. May they know that this is God's work and not ours and that you will build your church. And we praise you that we too can say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.